Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey friends, have you noticed that no matter how much yoga we do, we still may struggle in our intimate relationships. Yoga can and does help, but at a certain point, you need more relational practices and support from trusted allies. My husband and I have a wonderful marriage, but we're not necessarily the best relationship teachers. In episode 315, I brought on the founders of the relationship school, Jason and Ellen. They live and breathe all things relational, boundaries, conflict, owning your needs, attachment styles, and so much more. If you want to learn how to work through conflict better and communicate better, Jason is offering 50% off his Indestructible Partnerships course. Thousands of people have changed their relationships for the better with this course. Go to relationshipschool slash Laura and use the coupon code Laura to get 50% off this life-changing course. Now back to the podcast. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today I have Amber Cottle on here. Amber is passionate about sharing her own challenging journey with food as an executive chef and now owner of her own restaurants. She's had a dynamic emotional relationship with food since she was eight years old, which led to her binging, restricting, purging, chronic dieting, and addiction to diet pills and exercise. She used food to avoid all feelings and cope with anxiety, stress, trauma, depression, and fear in her body, which she openly shares along with the honest and continuous process for healing and learning to use food to nourish your body. Please enjoy our conversation today. Welcome, Amber. So glad to have you on here today. Hi, thanks for having me so much, Laura. (laughs) Well, we get to talk about things that are near and dear to so many of our hearts, which is food and all the stuff that goes into food. You are a chef. You are, it sounds like a holistic healer, but I'd love to backtrack and find out a little bit about your history and how you got to the place where you are now. Have you always been interested in cooking and making food? Yes, I have. So I have been interested in food, obsessed with food since I was um, a little girl. I started cooking in the kitchen with my grandma at the age of three. I always was in the kitchen. I was responsible for family meals for my family. I went to a little baby culinary school when I was like eight or nine. And I always knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a chef. I've been in this restaurant industry since the age of 14 and I've never left. And so I always wanted to work with food. I love the beauty of food. I remember having like a memorable meal 
um, in my late teens and could never, I could not stop thinking about it. I was like, I want to do that. I want to make a difference in somebody's life and make a memorable meal. So I did the classic um, Southern Italian training in Colorado. And I was the only woman in the kitchen and I almost quit every single day. It was, it was brutal. It was hard. It was scary. And then I was asked to move to California, Los Angeles. 19 years ago to open up a restaurant. And I was an executive chef there called um, Mediterraneo for 10 years. And it was amazing and so hard. I worked the grueling 80-hour work week that chefs do. Party too much, was drinking too much alcohol, too much caffeine. I was addicted to sugar. I was eating processed food. I wasn't fueling my body with the right food. I was, I was walking around tired with brain fog and fatigued and bloating and inflammation and pain. And I was putting band-aids on it. I was, I was, and and my back history here, Laura, is that for the last three decades, I've also had disorder, struggled with eating disorders and disordered eating and abused food. So I never had had a healthy relationship with food until the last about five years of my life into my 40s. And so finally at the end of my career, Mediterraneo is when my health took a crash. And that is when. I really started to dive into the healing benefits of food. So when my health took a crash and I left that restaurant to open up now my restaurants, I have two restaurants in Southern California, one in Hermosa Beach, one in Manhattan Beach. They're called the Source Cafe. They're organic. The food is made with intention, with integrity, high vibrational food. One of my stores is completely gluten-free and dairy-free. We make all of our own cheeses. We only use three oils in the house. And why I opened up those restaurants is because I wanted to heal myself with food. And I knew that there was a need to heal others with food. And for the last 30 years leading up to that, I was abusing food. And there was a little voice that was like, okay, you know, Amber, it's time to heal yourself with food. Wow, that's so interesting. Going off of that, I mean, I imagine that having eating disorder or food issues like and being a chef, it's almost like being an alcoholic and being a bartender. Exactly. exactly. I was like, God has let me just tell you, God has no mistakes. God has no mistakes. Okay. Like here I am suffering with like starving and you know binging and restricting and like crazy diet mentality. And here I am making this beautiful, gorgeous food and serving all these people. And I couldn't appreciate it because I was so manic around the food. So that was definitely part it's part of my story. That's why I had to start with my my intro to explain how I got to like where I am now with food. Yes. Right. You had to heal your own emotional and obviously eating psychology so yeah. that you could better serve others. So what is that like being an executive chef? I mean, what are, what are the requirements? Are you coming up with the menu? Are um, You're not doing the nitty gritty, but are you overseeing it? Do you need to sample everything that is made even if it's like a like a regular item on the menu or is it that there's a recipe and you never sample how do, how does that go so at Mediterraneo, I was the executive chef there for 10 years that was my baby there were all my recipes I had sous chefs but I created everything the menus were mine and I would yes have to taste everything and so some nights at the end of the night I'd go home and I was like oh my god I can't like taste anything else. And that is kind of where my disordered eating started also is because I would starve myself then after long shifts of having to taste everything. But as an executive chef, I mean, it's our art that's going out, right? That's my reputation representing me. And so, yes, I taste every single thing. And even if it's, I walk in on a random down there, random day and they're making some of the classic stuff that we've had on there for years, I'm still going to walk by and I'm going to, I'm going to try the bruschetta. I'm going to try the pesto because maybe somebody forgot the salt. Maybe somebody 
oversalted it. So yes, that is. And the nitty gritty, you know, as I started, when we open up restaurants, I mean, it's so hard. I do all the nitty gritty. And then yes, I have people that can help me. But I was always a hands-on executive chef because I wanted my employees to feel supported, but they worked their butts off for me because they saw me in the trenches with them. So I never was one to walk in and bark orders and leave. I was right there behind the stoves, you know, 14, 15, 16 hours in the heat. Yeah. Like barely drinking water, barely being able to go pee. Like no wonder my adrenals were blown. No wonder I was addicted to caffeine. Like, you know, I pushed my body, especially in my late 20s going into my 30s when my health crash happened is, I mean, yeah. I mean, I would work behind that stove for 16 hours and not take a breath. So... Yeah, before we go on to your health crashing, I'm also curious what you learned when you were in the kitchen, not as an executive chef, but back in Colorado where you were one, you, sounds like you were the only female. And what were the things that you learned that you decided you were specifically not going to bring into your restaurant where you were the executive chef? Some of the mindset, the behavior. I mean, we see these, you know, Iron Chef, all these shows where they were just yelling at the people. And I'm wondering, like, is that very effective? <laughs> the restaurant business is a brutal business. It's, I feel like we're a rare breed. I mean, that works in the restaurant business. I've been in the business, like I said, since I was 14, I'm going to be 45 next week. So it's kind of like an, an addiction in itself. You know, here's the culture in the kitchen, you know, because there's so much on the line for that perfect, beautiful plate to go out. And that is the chef's art. That is why there is high energy. And yes, there's a lot of yelling, there's throwing pans, there's cussing and being the only woman. And this was, oh my God, I was in my early twenties, 21, 22. I mean, whew, it was, yeah, it was rough. I went home every night and I cried. I almost quit every single night. I mean, it was, there was some torture. I felt it was like the harassment. And so I chose being a young female chef when I was the executive chef at Mediterranean. I had an all male kitchen and that was hard because as a young female executive chef with older men, that that was really hard too. So I knew that I had to flex my muscle and my power, but I, I did not want to be a screaming, yelling chef. And I also wanted to be in the trenches with my workers. My chefs were not. And I was yelled out all the time and I was belittled. And I was like, I can't, I can't work like that. The beginning phases of Metatronio, I was pretty out of control and wild because I was working 80 plus hours a week. I was just trying to get by. But then later in my career, you know, I was always known to pay my staff more than any other chefs. I mean, it's a low paying industry in the back of the house. And I was like, I don't want to do that. So, you know, the more I took care of them, they took care of me. And I still to this day have employees that have been with me for 10 plus years that followed me up to my other um, restaurant when I opened up my own restaurants. And now in my restaurants, it's amazing because I mean, being a woman, first of all, is, is so great because I'll say to my staff, it's like, Hey, you guys, like I'm very emotional. I'm going to, tell you all about my feelings. We're not going to sweep anything under the rug. And this is a blessing of a curse of having a female chef because we're going to talk about this. You know, and this is mostly all men that I still work with. So there's we have very open, open, authentic conversations and we do not yell and scream at my restaurant. So on that note, how did you decide you want to open up your own place, knowing that just as the chef, which is a huge responsibility, then becoming also the owner of the restaurant. I mean, the food industry is a challenging industry. I, I've, I've, just as a background, I have worked in it only, only in waiting tables, but that's very stressful too. And so obviously the wait staff becomes very friendly with the kitchen staff and the chef and all of that. And they need to work well together so that there's no blame going around when something goes wrong. We're kind of like pitching in. 
you know, for any kind of managing errors. But how did you decide to like amp up your stress level by becoming an owner? Or did you feel like this was the next level that would actually give you more space to provide the foods that had actually healed you? Wow. So when I took the leap to quit Mediterranean, that was really scary to open up my own restaurant. I really had no idea what what I was doing. (laughs) And I was more... Everybody was like, you're crazy. Don't do it. You might fail the restaurant business. And I was like, you know what? I have to take this, this risk because I know that this restaurant is needed. I know I'm ready to help heal myself. And I know there's such a need for people to have a clean restaurant to eat at that's safe. And so... My personality and my human design is I go head first in and God had my back and it happened really quickly. There was a lot of divine timing involved in it. And I didn't really look too much forward. I knew that I was about to be the CEO and the chef and the everything. And I did it. I did it by myself. And it was one of the scariest, hardest, most satisfying, rewarding moments of my life. It was like birthing a baby and I'm not a mother, but that's what it felt like when I had a friend that was giving birth at the same time as opening my first restaurant. So it was tremendously stressful, um, but it did allow me at the same time some space to start creating the foods that I finally wanted to create. And I got to see immediate benefits in myself and results in my guests. So So can you talk a little bit about the difference between when you were an executive chef And when you opened up your own restaurant, what were those decisions that you made that you were going to be sticking to in this very purest sense to change what was on the menu? Yeah. I mean, so I knew going into this restaurant that I was going to be able to start to source out from very specific vendors and yeah, local companies that I wanted to support. That was a non-negotiable for me. And I knew I could partner up with the people I wanted to partner up with that had the same level of integrity in their company. So that was really, really exciting. When I was creating the menu, I mean, it's very exciting because I knew it was going to be mostly gluten-free, dairy-free, organic, non-GMO, and have plenty of raw, vegan, paleo, keto, hit all the, hit all the marks. And um, the, best, the best part of that was being able to source from the companies that I wanted to source and support from. Because you know, to, to this day... If we receive non-organic strawberries, I mean, they're, they're sprayed with 12 different pesticides. I'm going to return them. Now, non-organic versus organic, I would save a lot of money if I put those on the menu. But I knew when I opened that that was part of my integrity and a non-negotiable that I was not going to cheat because I feed a lot of people that are either sick or recovering from something serious. So that was um, I had more control in that also. So tell us a little bit about your journey from this breaking point where your health was really at its lowest and how you decided, did you decide or did you get help? How you decided to change your diet, change the way you were eating, change your lifestyle. It sounds like you're implementing many other things besides just what you eat. It's your entire lifestyle. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, when I hit my rock bottom, as I mentioned before, I was I was miserable. I was in so much pain. I had just had one hip surgery, a hip scope in my right hip. I had torn both of my hip labrums from over-exercising. I found it possible to exercise two to four hours a day while working my stressful, you know, strenuous work week as a chef. And it was the inflammation and the unhappiness. And so I had to really hit a rock bottom. Sounds like you have an addictive personality. 
I don't do. we all? But yeah, like there's certain there's certain oh, markers yeah. for sure. Exercise, caffeine. Yeah. I'm I'm a, I'm an overdo it. You know, always I'm at a level ten. And so when I went away to a fasting retreat, that is when I had my spiritual awakening, which I had read before in books. This was about eleven years ago. I had never experienced. I wasn't meditating at the time, and at that moment, I got into pranayama breath work and meditation and journaling and read Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way and then read this amazing book called Healing by David Elliott. And it was all about self-love. And I realized that, oh my God, I don't love myself. I don't accept accept myself. And I don't want to get another surgery on my left hip. And as I was in my fasting retreat, I kept hearing a voice saying, okay, it's time to heal yourself with food. And so... When I was in the fa- at my fasting retreat is when I started to have really huge visualizations on turmeric and creating this turmeric tonic drink. And from that moment, everything everything happened. Like I started creating this tonic, started selling it out of the back of Mediterraneo. I started losing weight and inflammation and so did my guests. I started educating myself and people about superfoods. I started making kale chips, but you know, kale chips are hot. They were not hot 11 years ago. So I was making things that were, I was making chocolate, raw cacao, kale chips. And honestly, nobody showed me. I dove headfirst into books and I just started studying everything. I also started going to acupuncture, functional doctors, natural paths. And anytime for me, my personality is if I go some to a doctor and they give me a supplement, a B vitamin, or or if I'm cleaning out candida or parasites, I'm going to go home and I'm going to research the best foods for that also. So from that and me being an investigator, that's how my creativity started. And then I found out I had hormonal and thyroid stuff. I had lost my menstrual cycle from over-exercising and stress for five years. So I started then to cut back and pull back, obviously on the processed food, but sugar, caffeine, gluten, and dairy. And those are the four big ones that I really dove into. And from my diet and wanting to heal myself is when my creativity really started to come through of like, I want to create food where it's still beautiful, delicious, and sexy, and I don't want to feel deprived. So that was like a really big intention of opening up, you know, the Source Cafe because I don't, I don't like the word healthy for food sometimes because people, it has a bad stigma when people will say, oh, healthy is so boring. I'm so nervous to make this health life, you know, change because healthy is boring and it's steamed broccoli and tofu and chicken. It's like, no, healthy food can be gorgeous and beautiful. And that's what I provide daily. So amazing. And I, I had to hit that place of desperation of willing to change. And from there, just dove head into to studying how can I feel better through food. And luckily I'm a chef and I love food and I'm creative with food. So I could start easily, you know, creating once I started research about chlorella and mixing it with mushrooms. And you know, like- that's incredible. I mean, it sounds like you took what already was a craft and like made it like a witchcraft in a great way. You know, it really like turned on the magic of food. And this is what I talk a lot about. I also became to chef nothing like you. I went to a fully plant-based chef training program that was really rooted in macrobiotics. And I'm so grateful for that. I just did that for, for me and my family. But you know, it's the way what we eat is fuel. And so often food is looked at as so many other things. Like it's a source of comfort. It's a source of anxiety. It's just, it's oh, like, yeah. you know, when you're depressed, when you're low, on and on and on. And we kind of stuff away our feelings. And, if, and now, of course, there's so much garbage food out there that's so shitty for you that only makes that kind of 
the hamster wheel even worse oh, yeah. because you get addicted to the sugar and the salt and and the fat and all of it. And it's it you it can be so much more. It can be like you said, delicious and nutritious, energizing, not depleting. And so for those people that are listening, what are some suggestions that you give to people who are really like, I am not much of a cook. I don't know where to go. I can't afford to go out to a, you know, a restaurant that does all this all the time. Where do I start? Yeah. So find a chef online. That's the easiest way. Follow their recipes. There's so many. I have a ton of recipes. Meal prepping is what I say first. So it's meal prep and meal planning. It's like, okay, really it's the planning. Like, you know, I don't know where to start. I I don't have enough money to go out to eat. I want to make some changes in my life. Well then let's start cooking our own food at home. But with that, like I make a full menu for myself. Like I know I'm going to have chia seed pudding on Monday and Wednesday. And I know I'm going to have... I've got kale for kale salad and I've got some roasted bison. Like it's, I plan it out. I go to the store and, and prep it. And there's so many recipes online now and so many online cooking classes. I've got a ton of online cooking classes. I think that's the best way to start. If somebody has it in their budget to find a natural path or a functional doctor, that's also a good way to start. There's so many um, blood tests out there because I'm a really big fan of blood work. And I always mention it when somebody's getting started, if they're feeling... If they're feeling bad, depending what their goal is, if they want to start cooking for themselves and find a chef and start following some recipes and start cooking at home. If they're like, oh, I really want to feel better in my body. I don't feel that great. Then you're going to have to start eliminating first. And that's always another tip. It's like, hey, maybe start with eliminating processed food and sugar first, or maybe get rid of eggs for a week. And I love eggs, but test it out. Have it start a food journal. Maybe it's the gluten. So maybe you cut out gluten for seven days. And I always say that kind of tested if somebody doesn't have money to, you know, help have somebody else help them. So yeah. I think that's a great idea. And what we don't realize is there are so many foods that are inflammatory and they might not be as inflammatory for your neighbor. But yeah. if you have already existing inflammation, what those foods are doing is they're really lowering your threshold so that your inflammation is going to be presented in your joints, on your skin, in your energy level. And just by eliminating those foods and noticing how much energy you have, how, how you're going to the bathroom. You know, if, if you're not going to the bathroom, if you're not pooping every day, there's a problem. The problem. And that's, it's not normal, right? When, when people tell me sometimes they only go a, poop a couple of times a week, I'm like, that is not normal. Oh, it's you, not. you know, you need that as an elimination and and you're not just eliminating fiber, you're eliminating all the other crud in your digestive tract. You don't want that getting stuck there. Are there any foods that you would say if somebody came to you kind of universally, I mean, I know what I say, but I'm curious from your experience, universally just eliminate these at least semi-permanently, if not permanently, because they are really a drag on your energy and can lead to a higher inflammatory state. Yeah. So for me, I'm not a hater of any food, but for me and what I tell people automatically is definitely sugar. I mean, anything with white sugar, it, it's a no. I mean, it's there's just so many substitutes out there from maple to coconut sugar to honey. There's no really reason to eat white sugar anymore. <laughs> it's, it's sneaky. It's in everything. Gluten in this country, I meant it's it's a it's it's a no. I think it's a it's a gut disruptor. Now I have a friend that they mill their own grains and it's organic and they have their own farm and you know the, 
it's that's beautiful, but that's rare. So going out to a regular restaurant and eating bread, you have no idea where that wheat has been. It could be sprayed with lysophate, which is one of the number one cause of cancer of cancer and hormone disruptors. So those two things, dairy, I mean, again, if I'm in Europe, I'm gonna eat some gluten, I'm gonna drink some wine, and I'm gonna have some dairy. I feel amazing. I was in Europe a couple months ago and I lost a half a pound. I can't do that in the United States. That's unfortunate. But we have 175 additives and chemicals that actually we can use that are illegal in Europe, which just shows you what we put in our food. So processed food. And I mean, everybody's bodies is different. So like I can eat eggs, but I know a lot of people can't eat eggs. That causes a lot of inflammation. Some people shouldn't really eat a ton of nuts and seeds. That causes inflammation. And that's why blood work is so important to know like where you stand. I know cruciferous veggies. You know, I had to go through a phase where I couldn't eat any cruciferous veggies and it was awful. I couldn't eat cauliflower, broccoli, spinach, or not spinach, sorry, kale. It was super sad. I do, I can now, but I think the big top ones are sugar, gluten, and dairy. And unless you know your source. Yes. And another good point to like cruciferous veggies or anything else, what I often tell people, and I have to work on this myself, I remind my husband, we have to chew. We have to chew a lot because our digestion starts in our mouth. It does. And so somebody says, oh, Laura, you know, I tried to eat more veggies and I just got so much gas. And I said, well, okay, A, ramp up slowly because you are, you know, it's a different digestive process. There's more breaking down that has to be done than something like sugar, which is already broken down for you and goes right into your bloodstream. But- you also can't inhale kale. You cannot inhale lettuce. You, you can't inhale broccoli. You have to chew it and you have to chew it a lot. And by doing that, you're starting the process with the digestive enzymes in your saliva. That's where it starts, not in your gut. You can't swallow this stuff down. And so it's amazing when I give that advice, you know, 90% of the time they turn around and like, oh my gosh, I, just, I eat so fast. I it was just eating that like I eat a sandwich. And it's like, no, you can't. With our culture. And that's where I share in my book, my upcoming book called Hungry, Why I Effing Eat is, um, and it's about my relationship with food since I was three years old. I, I, I say in there, like, if you're an emotional eater and you struggle with disordered eating, you got to sit down and chew your food and breathe because it's also a way in our country to overeat. If we, we eat so fast and if I'm on my phone and I'm scrolling through Instagram or watching TV and I have a plate of food in front of me and I'm not being mindful and all of a sudden I'm like, did I just eat that whole plate of food? Wait, I'm hungry still. What did I just eat? And then I get back up and I'm picking around. I'm like, wait, I'm not, I'm not full yet. So it's slow down. Chew, we're supposed to chew 22 times. And you know, I've I've done that before as a chef. That's always a joke, like because we always stand when we eat. So that's like the worst for digestion. And I mean, we inhale our food. I mean, it's like we have three minutes to eat. Y'all get out of the way. I'm eating. And so, yeah, the bloating and the constipation or the gas. I mean, our bodies tell us exactly what's going on. And like you said earlier, you know, if you're not pooping or you're or you're having diarrhea or you're feeling, you know, bloated or gassy or brain fog, I mean, that that is your body's trying to tell you something. And I ignored it for like 28, 30 years. <laughs> and we can map with, oh, I'll have a little bit more coffee or, oh, I'll have a little treat or, oh, I'll have a little wine tonight. Like, or how about antacids? The people are popping them like they're pills and it's like you are masking the issue at hand. So getting back to your book, which I love because I love the word fuck, um, <laughs> why, I, why I fucking eat. Um, you said that started off when you were four. What were you aware of at four where you were using food as some kind of emotional 
blanket? So I think when I say four, it was more my obsession with food started. I remember loving food so much and I never really um, have a feeling of being full. Like I was always really hungry and I was hungrier than my sister and I was hungry than like, I always remember being hungry. It really started around the age of my fascination started at three and myself numbing and soothing and comparing to people was seven and a half, eight years old. And I started to... Was that comparison because you were heavier or people were making comments about how much you ate? You know, honestly, what it was, was I developed quicker. So I got a booty and boobs first. I had my period at 12 or 13, but it was before some of my best friends. And I had, I wore a bra before people. But looking back at pictures, I mean, I was not a chubby kid. It was the body dysmorphia started and nobody ever said, oh, you're fat or you're chubby. No, it was, it, maybe it's because I hung out with a bunch of skinny friends. And at that time in the eighties, it was like skinny. And it was like this terrifying feeling of being fat, right? And wanting to not have boobs and not wanting to have butt. I was also slower at sports, but I always, I was hungry. I'd go over to my best friend's house and she lived, we were from Georgia and she was a small eater and I'd end up eating all of her food. And I would, oh, and her mother would always think that I was like a big eater, right? But I started hiding and sneaking food at a very young age candy bars, stuff like that, because I didn't want, you know, my family. And my because parents. there was shame around it, you know? And- there was shame around it. And it was a way to soothe. And um, there was a lot of sugar in my house. So it was a way for me to, I don't know, get back at... <laughs> yeah. Don't you think a lot of that food and body, body dysmorphia and like, I think I, I noticed because I have kids and my daughter is now, she'll be 19 in July. My son is 16. And, you know, with my daughter, she's always been on the slender side. And she was teased for that for a while. But Mm. the point is that I think that most kids don't really have an idea of like big versus small until they become in school, in some kind of conditioning, sometime social environment, the cultural environment, you see pictures, whatever. And I think that seems to be where the comparisons start. Because in your own household, do you remember any of those type of experiences where you were feeling kind of less than because you were being you were comparing yourself to? Yeah, you know, honestly, I danced. I grew up dancing, and everybody. Ah, in the dance there you go. Uh-huh. Right, everybody in the dance red are or thinner, and a lot of dancers don't have boobs. And I had boobs, and I had a butt, and my sister did not have boobs, and everyone was thinner. And again, I wasn't fat. I was just. I was developing. But I think you know, I I'm not. Sh- I'm sure many dance teachers don't do this, but I know. And when I, and I'm a little bit older than you, but like our dance teachers commented <laughs> on yeah, people that yeah. were yeah. at all outside of a thinner friend. Like I remember even when I came back and I was 16 and I had inadvertently lost maybe four pounds yeah. because I had been sick over Christmas break. And my ballet teacher was like, oh, you look so good. And I was just like, celebrated. you got celebrated, celebrated. And you see it too, that, you know, and it just leads to a very, very effed up. Oh, yeah. The body dysmorphia, it's so crazy because it started so so early for me. Um, it was wrapped around the fear of getting fat. I talk about it in my book, this like fear of getting fat, the word fat, which led to me starving myself and dieting. I mean, I started dieting 13. And again, when I look back at pictures when I was 12, 13, 14, I was not heavy. <laughs> I was just thick, bigger than... In your my- head, right. Yeah. You know, I had some skinny size zero friends, and I always wanted to be flat chested and flat butt and like super, super skinny. And so that's where the obsession started. And nobody really was sitting around calling me fat. And, you know, all the boys and the skinny girls and the dancing. And 
then the starving and the binging, restricting, the hiding the food, the counting the calories, the obsessive compulsive around the scale, that all started very early for me. You know, I do some cooking classes for a nonprofit um, organization. And this woman is amazing. It's these tweens and they're from like eight to 16, these girls. And some, we asked the girls, I did a cooking demo and they said they hate their body. They were eight, and nine years old and they wanted, they felt that and they wanted to change something about their body. And one of them at like 10 wanted plastic surgery. And I was like, oh my God, I want to help all of y'all because I hated my body until like five years ago. <laughs> I, finally, I finally accepted that, like, okay, I have curves. Like, I like my double D boobs aren't going anywhere. It doesn't matter. <laughs> They're here. I've got a booty. You know, I've always tried to hide my butt. And finally, somebody's like, you know, butts are in style, season and style. Like, why do you people are paying to-, to get butt implants, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like this whole thing. So, my mission through this book is try to help people form a healthy relationship with food, but also love and accept their body because that was a miserable hamster wheel of like shame and self-doubt and for and body hatred. Self, I did a lot of self-sabotaging things to myself for, I mean, 30 years. That's a lot of energy expended. A lot of energy and a, a lot of addiction, a lot more addiction that happened in my 20s, you know, with the over-exercising and starving and taking laxatives and addicting to colonics and enemas and started to get into drugs and alcohol. That made me skinny and smoking cigarettes. You know, I just was like, give me anything to numb so I don't have to feel my feelings because all those are just symptoms. That's not They the are. Reason. And the truth is, if all of a sudden, for some miracle, you became that skinny, flat-boarded, you know, busted person... Yeah those issues would still be there. You know what I mean? And that's what people don't get is we think if we acquire this, we acquire more money, we acquire a better body, different color hair, whatever. But it's really the going inward to love yourself and love yourself from the inside out. And of course, yep. you know, do the best you can to feel good. Uh, but it's, yeah, I mean, I, some of that comes with age. Unfortunately, I wish we could instill this into the kids younger. So So too, it does come with age. I think that this is such a really passionate and really important topic dear to my heart. It is. And I'm so so excited to read your book. So when is it coming out and where can people find it? Okay. So it is going to be out end of August. We're we're doing final edits right now. It is going to be pre available for pre-order on Chef Amber LA, which is my Instagram and Facebook. And then also through my website, chefamber.com. So, and on my website, I have an online cooking class series and links to IGTV and YouTube and tons of sexy, beautiful, healthy recipes and tips for holistic um, living. Yeah. I love it. I can't wait to try them out myself, read your book, and I'd love to fly out to LA sometime and come to your restaurant and just like sit there and eat it all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to us. For everybody out there, go check out Chef Amber. She is delightful and has, you know, I think that what you're doing with food and with your own experience of transforming how you feel about yourself. This is the stuff that's going to heal everyone because food is something that's in our life every day and our relationship with it can really change our relationship with ourselves. So it really can. Thank you for sharing that. And for all of you out there, as always, I'm pulling for you.